0: So, uh, thank you very much to uh, Dr. Milani for inviting me. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back at Stanford. It's a great pleasure to talk in the Iranian Studies series. Um, thank you very much, of course, also to, to Roma uh, Parhad and to uh, Franco Erico for all of the organization that goes into these kinds of events. What I'm going to present to you tonight, and there'll be a series of of slides with quotations, some of which I will discuss, others are there for you to read as um, I talk about the issues that are pertinent to those poems and to those excerpts. This is based uh, around part of my recent book that that Roma just uh, mentioned. And it was really at Stanford that I feel I understood what I really wanted my book to be um, and that came out of partly the teaching that I did um, that here at Stanford because I was within a comparative literature department and not in the the kind of equivalent of a a NELC or an area studies Middle Eastern Near Eastern Studies Department that I think I had to think about the way in which uh, I wanted to discuss Hafez in a slightly broader context but also it was through the interactions with colleagues in comparative literature in the broader uh, DLCL, the division of literatures, cultures and languages but also uh, people who were great colleagues and close friends in history and in religious studies and those who are involved in the Iranian studies program that I feel the book that that um, I'm going to talk about and from tonight um, really came into being. So it's wonderful to be back at Stanford and talking about uh, my recent published work. Lauded and genius who really is inimitable by literary critics of the past and held up by scholars of the present as a poet who defies comparison with others. Shamsuddin Muhammad Hafez al-Shirazi, who died in approximately 1390, remains an opaque character for many. Soon after his death, Hafez the poet and or his poems started being referred to as Lesan al-Qayb, or the tongue of the unseen realm. As early as 1421, Hafez's ghazals, which are short, monorhyme, broadly amorous, but not exclusively amorous, lyric poems were called the envy of the source of eternal life and were said to be endowed with the power to revive the expired heart just like the magical breaths of Jesus. In my new book, I present the poetry of Harfez as part of a larger organic whole and I believe to look behind the hyperbole that surrounds... Hafez's poetry and penetrate the saint-like film that obscures the poet himself, for that purpose I've adopted a comparative approach. I believe wholeheartedly that there is great value in analyzing Hafez's poetry alongside texts that were composed by those working in the same highly competitive, profoundly uh, intertextual environment of 14th century Shiraz. And you can see from this map of the uh, Iranian plateau, but also going into what is modern-day Iraq, the position of Shiraz vis-à-vis other cities I'm going to mention. Hafez and his peers imitated one another's poems, responded to each other repeatedly in verse, and vied to outdo one another in the hope of securing lucrative patronage. As such, their poetry demands to be analysed in tandem, And it is only through a comparative textual study that this at once loco-specific, trans-regional and intergeneric poetry and poetic environment that a nuanced and altogether more balanced picture of Hafez will emerge. Mine is a study of Persian poetry at a specific historical juncture in a particular place, that is post-Mongol Shiraz a city of approximately 60,000 people that had immense cultural reach. My analysis of Hafez and the other poets of Shiraz is presented within the broader context of a transregional literary network that stretched across the major cities of uh, 14th century Iran and Iraq, which shared a common poetic idiom. By focusing on a large network of Persian poets that were active from about 1330 to 1400, across Shiraz, Kerman, Yazd, Baghdad and Tabriz, I reread Hafez through a sober lens and with keen attention to his contemporary literary context. My study embraces the conscious and deliberate hybridity and ambiguity of the Persian Ghazal. And though I place emphasis on the profane, I in no way seek to deny the mystical depth of this poetic form. That said, the late Yashater did well to remind us that Hafez's cultural climate, though it was saturated with mystical thought, um, and the currency of such ideas and expressions did not entail a deliberate attachment to Sufi tenets or practices. Just because something sounds mystical or looks mystical doesn't necessarily mean that it is intended to be so. We must also acknowledge that Hafez and his contemporaries wrote with a variety of contexts in mind and that their sophisticated interlocutors, many of whom, including a number of royal patrons, wrote poetry themselves, that these people were capable of understanding a given ghazal on multiple levels. Whether we wish to label Hafez as a professional court poet or not, we cannot deny that he was a major player within Shiraz's socio-political fabric and that he enjoyed largely nourishing relationships with a long line of local rulers and relationships that were perhaps slightly less direct with the elites of Baghdad and Tabriz. These two cities at the time were Shiraz's most significant cultural and political competitors. Very little little reliable information exists about the life of Hafez. Born around 1320 in Shiraz to a local mother and a father of Esfahani stock, Hafez appears to have received a solid education in the Islamic sciences. In his youth, the poet earned the right to use the title Hafez, which denotes one who has memorized the Quran by heart, hence his pen name. Although, even in this pen name, there is a typically Hafezian ambiguity, since the term Hafez also means a professional musician or singer. Hafez died in Shiraz in or just before 1390 without having prepared a definitive edition of his own poems And these were collected into what we call the Divan of Hafez comprising approximately 500 ghazals and a few poems in other forms only in the early 15th century approximately a generation or so after his death In the 15th century the foundations of Hafez's lasting fame were firmly laid as he was gradually severed from the intertextual framework that I'm exploring tonight, that he had shared with his peers. Firstly, this was uh, effected through the compilation of his divan and then through its repeated copying and distribution and then also through the divan's fetishization as an object in its own right imbued with otherworldly powers. By 1500, Hafez's divan had become a kind of mass product widely used for consulting omens and for popular storytelling. In 1343, around a decade after the effective collapse of Mongol rule in Iran, Shah Sheikh Abu Ishaq, the last Inju'id ruler, gained control of Shiraz and ruled for a decade marred by unsuccessful and costly campaigns aimed at wresting Yazd and Kerman from his key rivals, the Muzaffarids. By all accounts, Shah Sheikh Abu generous patronage saw the city flourish and restored Shiraz's reputation as a haven for poets, as it had been in the 13th century. Just as the Inju'ids, Muzaffarids, and the jalayirids the rulers of Baghdad and Tabriz, did battle by the sword, so did their poets in pen, by critiquing, lampooning, and, occasionally, expressing admiration for one another. In this politically fractured landscape, the profusion of lively local patronage networks served to tip the balance in favour of poets, as numerous flourishing city-states with imperial aspirations vied to attract the best. Local kings, of course, needed eloquent poets to spread positive images of them abroad, which meant that considerable resources were made available to eulogists. The 14th century was a period of intense cultural exchange between the major cities of Iran and Iraq, and there was increased mobility among poets with the cultural pull of Shiraz, Baghdad, and Tabriz being the strongest. From at least the early 13th century, poets praise Shiraz, its environs, and its inhabitants in verse. These standalone lyric poems, in praise of what is known as the city of knowledge, the Doral Elm or Madineya Elm can collectively be called shiraziyat. Poets incorporated topophilia into their shiraziyat and the explicit use of a set repertoire of topographical allusions forged intertextual bridges linking poems from distinct historical periods and that resulted over time in a harmonized vision of shiraz as as the ideal city par excellence. This poetic praise for Shiraz may at first seem hyperbolic, until we consider what travellers and geographers had to say about the city. In the 13th century, Shiraz is lauded for its healthy air, fresh water, and abundant agricultural products. And in the subsequent century, the famous North African traveller, Ibn Battuta, visited Shiraz twice during the lifetime of Hafez. Ibn Battuta remarks how well-built and superbly planned Shiraz is, how pious and chaste the city's inhabitants are, in particular the women, and he raised Shiraz second only to Damascus in the Islamic East in terms of markets and orchards. Shiraz is one of those cities whose charm inspires attachment, pride and personal loyalty, and the lococentric centric poems produced in the city more than six or seven centuries ago continue to dictate how Shiraz is memorialized and imagined today. In Hafez's lifetime prose texts were composed that promoted the idea of Shiraz as the promised paradise. In a work entitled the Shiraz Naamem, the city's blessed nature forms the focus. The author declares Shiraz the cream of all lands It is the paradise garden reconfigured on earth In court poetry, the royal audience hall Is depicted itself as a micro-paradise Situated at the heart of the broader bliss That is Shiraz and its immediate hinterland So these two poems here, side by side The one on the left being uh, Hafez's most famous Basal in praise of Shiraz The one on the right being uh, Saadi from the previous century. Saadi dying almost exactly a century before Hafez died. Uh, So the one on the right being Saadi's most famous poem uh, for Shiraz. And I'm going to compare these poems to a certain extent. Hafez's Bazal opens with a benediction for the city and a prayer for its good fortune, the kind of blessing one expects to be dedicated to the patron at the close of a panegyric qasidim. So this is the poem that opens, It's a very famous poem that everyone knows. In the opening line, Hafez stresses Shiraz's uniqueness through the adjective be mesal, peerless that he uses to describe, its, describe the city's goodly station a feature of course of all great cities Hafez extends this uh, prayer for the good fortune this doa into the second and the third lines where he attaches the listener's attention to the Ruknabad canal the Jafarabad suburb and the musalla flower meadow Having introduced Shiraz's magnetism in the first three lines of his poem, Hafez addresses those who reside elsewhere and entreats them to come to the city. As a poet with strong ties to the court, Hafez worked to promote promote abroad a superior image of his patron and of his city. Line four, in which the poet takes a somewhat pietistic stance, includes praise for Shiraz's inhabitants, who he describes as Sahib Kamal, that is, endowed with all human accomplishments and distinctions. In line 5, we encounter a subtle instance of self-boasting on behalf of the city. Shiraz is a greater source of sweetness, which is a standard metaphor in Persian, for both physical beauty and literary eloquence, than Egypt itself which was a major producer of sugar, and home to the captive and then triumphant Joseph, the epitome of ideal, youthful, male beauty. Hafez's prayer for Shiraz's good fortune, combined with his praise for the city's uh, paradise-like allure, served to foreground a lament for an absent beloved, which underscores the link between the city and the human object of desire. It is as though Hafez, by starting with praise and moving to erotic longing, has inverted the conventional order of the panegyric ode. As with with almost all Persian lyric poetry, the love object longed for here is a young male, and the desire expressed is male homoerotic. By eulogizing a gypsy, a luli, Hafez casts this absent beloved as a local rather than an exotic boy this object of desire he says is a bloodthirsty sweet boy Shirin Pesaj an appellation that points to the patron as all powerful beloved the pivotal amorous topos of the panegyric ghazal. the connection between Hafez's poem and Saadi's and the poem by Saadi is the, the ode that opens dami آن baz بَازْ bar بَرْ سَرِ اللَّهُ The connection between Hafez's poem and Saadi's is of course found in the very beginning where both of them start, خُشَا which you can translate as blessed be or how fine is. Hafez made it clear by opening his ghazal in the same way that Saadi had done, that he intended it to be read against that of the master poet of Mongol Shiraz. This is a singular example of a dialogic device we find employed in the poetry of Shiraz, intertextual allusions to what you can call predecessor poems that reference a genre history or textual community that both poet and audience share. After the first Uh, initial words though similarities between Saadi's poem and that of Hafez become far more subtle unlike Hafez who speaks from within the city, Saadi speaks at a distance from his hometown and consequently his poem is tinged with a longing to return the poet imagines viewing Shiraz from the vantage point of the Allahu Akbar gorge that overlooks the city from the north what Saadi sees is paradise on earth and a place of safety. In line three, Saadi too alludes to Hezrī's quest in the darkness of the underworld, and an allusion to Shiraz as a former seat of Solomon's throne, Taht Soleiman, speaks to the fact that from the early 13th century, Fars was referred to in poetry, prose, and official inscriptions as Molke Soleiman, the Realm of Solomon. From line four, Sa'adi adopts a pietistic tone, one that promotes Shiraz's moral economy. The poet sings of the city's thousand or more saints, whose combined holiness gives strength to the Ka'aba, Islam's most revered shrine. Perhaps borrowing from local history writing, Sa'adi hints at the profound correlation between the physical city and the spiritual state of its denizens. Sadi's statement here reflects the importance of Shiraz as a center for shrine visitation in this period. Of course, one of Shiraz's other epithets is borja o or the Tower of Saints. Cities such as Shiraz derive devout power from the large-scale veneration of saintly bodies buried within them. The associated social, cultural, and of course commercial benefits of such large-scale shrine visitation cannot be ignored. Sadi continues to place emphasis on piety in line five, where he invokes the memory and the associated holy blessing of two of the city's most celebrated mystics, with whom he perhaps felt a close personal connection. Poets and their patrons derive glory from the achievements of these individuals and a pious gravitas attached to the physical location of their sacralizing remains in the city. Line 6 opens with a two-line du'a in which Saadi calls on God via Abraham and the Kaaba to protect the city of righteous men from all oppressors. Saadi's wish that the people of his city continue to live in a state of splendor and pride, tajamolul, naz, is perhaps not so different from the tone of Hafez's poem since tajamol also means to beautify oneself or to live in luxury. And naz can, can mean the feigned disdain and the coquetry of the recalcitrant love object. Here you have um, three one-line uh, quotations from the poetry of Hafez which are to do with specific um, and very important kind of nodes within the city. which we find referred to uh, in many poems is a subterranean canal that was built in the 10th century to carry fresh spring water for drinking and irrigation from the mountains 10 kilometers northeast of the city Hafez claims magical properties for Shiraz's water through allusions to the mysterious mystical figure and his quest for the water of everlasting life the abar is one of three loci repeatedly alluded to in Shiraz Yat that evoke pleasure-seeking and poetry performance, the other two being the Mosallar Meadow, which is the location where Hafez's tomb is, and jaaf abad a small settlement famed for its cluster of suburban gardens and orchards fed by man-made canals. To borrow terminology from Sneer and his study of Baghdad, Rukhnabad, Mosadlah, and Jafarabad can be called Shiraz's three chief icons that serve to anchor the city's identity. Shirazis frequented all three in pursuit of earthly delights, and in the poetry, Roknabad, Mosadla, and Jafarabad combine to form an image of Shiraz as a place of total bliss. These locations fuel Shiraz's transregional pull and excite passionate excitement, uh, excite passionate attachment. Sorry, in locals and outsiders alike, and we shall see that in a moment. The fixed association of these toponyms and their repeated and significant use across multiple poems functions in a not dissimilar way to a word I will now mispronounce uh, from Japanese, which is utamakura. Utamakura, or place names, act, Caymans tells us, as nodes within a poem through which the maker of that poem reaches out to make contact with other poems or poetic moments, and thereby complicate or enrich the signifying process of that poem as a whole. In my assessment, Roknabod, Mosala, and Jafar are akin to Meisho Utamakura. Places that are famous precisely, though not exclusively, because of their roles in poetry. There is little evidence that Hafez spent any time away from Shiraz. And the poet uses an allusion to the pull of Shiraz's emotive loci to excuse his inertia. And you see that here. Hafez was evidently trapped in a kind of amorous entanglement with his hometown. But as we shall see, this relationship with the city expressed in this fashion, in these poems which celebrate Shiraz, is not unique to Hafez. The first line, just to explain, uh, I purposefully didn't put the names of the poets so that you focus more on the lines themselves and on the fact that there is uh, comparability across these poems. The first uh, extract there is from uh, Obeidah Zarkhani, who I will talk about now The second from another contemporary poet, um, Emad Kermani, who really made his career primarily in Shiraz And the third is from a very less known poet, um, Haydar Shirazi, who was a slightly more junior uh, colleague of, of both Hafez and Emad Obey de who died in 1371, was, as most of us know, uh, really a very famous and important uh, satirist of medieval Iran. But he was also someone who produced a large amount of what mo- one might call more serious courtly poetry. Although he wasn't native to Shiraz, he made his literary career primarily in the city. In pre-modern times, of course, patriotism was a local sentiment, love of terra-patria. But Obeid was a migrant poet and he alludes many times in his poems to the idea that he is in a temporary sojourn in Fars and speaks of himself as an outsider. Very often he calls himself Qarib, kind of a stranger who is out of place and far from his hometown But for Obaid, Mossadah and Ruknabad more than compensate for his alien status So in that, that first quotation there, the second part of it The, the two words Qarib and Vatan are very loaded uh, as they still are in Persian today in many ways I think we can speak of Obeid as a kind of restless Alien You see that uh, In his poems Repeatedly and very much so In uh, this Quotation here Whereas again He talks about himself As being uh, Both uh, At the end the there Darvishiyu qaribi Zahmad Zahad Gozasht. That he, by Darvishi he presumably means poverty rather than anything else. But his Qaribi, his being in a state of uh, being out of place, being a stranger, being a foreigner in Shiraz, at least expressed in this poem, is a very negative experience for him. Obeid left Shiraz around 1353 in the wake of the overthrow and flight to Esfahan of his patron, Shah Sheikh Abu Eshal, who I mentioned earlier. The poet eventually found his way to Baghdad and, most likely, with the help of his newly found friend Salman Savejin, who was chief panegyrist to the Jalayirids, gained access to the glittering circle of Sultan Oveis, the ruler of Baghdad. Near the end of his life, Obeid successfully solicited Muzaffarid patronage, which we'll talk about in a moment. Here are two poems by by Obeid, two basals side by side. The one on the left is a basal in which he laments and very much bemoans the fact that he has to leave Shiraz and he leaves Shiraz under duress not willingly uh, with his, his life in danger It's a very powerful, rather uh, poignant, touching, moving poem And not the kind of poem that we associate with What we at least think about Obeda Zarkani. So I encourage you, if you read Persian To go back to Obeda Zarkhani To get the edition of Mahjub And to, to read his serious poetry The poem on the right is a poem that is an expression of a desire both a commitment to Shiraz but a desire to return to the city. What is extremely interesting about the poem on the right is the way in which it imitates the poem of Saadi that I mentioned earlier. It has the same meter, it has the same rhyme scheme which is based around uh, the name of the city itself. It begins and continues using many of the rhyme words that we find in the poem of Saadi, but also phrases and I'll come to one of those in a moment. As I said, Obaid returned to Shiraz in the last years of his life. Midway through the reign of Hafez's most celebrated patron, Shah Shoja. extant basides in praise of Shah Shoja bear witness to the poet's tenacity in recultivating royal favor in Shiraz after a considerable period of absence, much of, much of which was spent in the rival Jalairid Baghdad. When Obeid fled in 1353 the thought or the reality of leaving Shiraz as we see in the poem on the left is far too much for him to bear and in this heartfelt ghazal he depicts his involuntary departure from the city alluding to the fear that separation from Shiraz will spell his professional downfall in this poem Obeid appears to be in competition in some ways with Saadi spurred on by a desire not only to imitate but also outdo him As with all great response poems, though, Obeid invokes enough of the earlier poem to garner attention for his own, and whilst penning a masterful challenge to it. Obeid's celebration of his adoptive town is, of course, characteristically counter-pietistic. But like Saadi, he also speaks at a distance from Shiraz. So in the poem on the right, in the first line, there is this obvious and possibly satirical imitation of Sa'adi's phrase, Tajamolo Naz, where Obed speaks of his heart becoming accustomed to Tana'om Vanaz, ease and coquetry. In line two, Obed's counter view of the city comes into full view. Shiraz offers and is emblematic of the good life in all its erotic splendor. Contrary to Sa'adi's pious whitewashing of the city, Obey presents us with a balance. His heart associates with the Magi in the wine taverns, as well as with the Sufis and their lodge. Ultimately, though, the poet promotes an antinomian perspective that finds its crescendo in line 5. Whereas Sa'adi depicts the Kaabe taking flight above the hallowed tombs of Shiraz's innumerable saints, his 14th century imitator depicts his The poet's intoxicated heart Flying from above the head Of the wine-bibber In lines 6 and 7 We find homoerotic imagery Not dissimilar to Hafez's In the ghazals of Shiraz The erotopanegyric Is seldom absent What is fascinating And you can see in the Final portion of that poem On the right by Obeid Is that This is a poem written, most likely, in Baghdad, dedicated to the ruler of Baghdad, and asking the ruler of Baghdad to facilitate his return to Shiraz. It tells you this one short poem that is overlooked by most people, who, uh, not only people who study Obeid, but also, of course, people who study Hafez, is a window, really, onto the relationship between these courts at the time. Because they're competing with one another, but they're also, of course, uh, working in a way alongside one another. There's a lot of interaction. Here the interaction is literary, it's to do with poetry, and how poetry connects to the the court and the center of power. But these dynasties were also, they also intermarried. And uh, they perhaps at one point did battle, but they also made alliances, Against other local dynasties, you know the the typical you know kind of Game of Thrones type, which is the American illusion for all of you Americans. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's
0: also something Persian and Game of Thrones is music. is very important. Well,
1: comes,
0: uh, of course, yes, most things. So. Um, I want to now turn to talk a bit more about. Uh, the relationship between Shiraz and Baghdad that we find in this poetry. If you look at the beginning there, um, that is a a two-line quotation from a poem not by a poet who made his career, in Shiraz But by Salman Esarbeji Who was a Persian poet Who migrated to Baghdad Baghdad at the time In the 14th century Is a centre for Persian poetry Primarily Not for Arabic poetry Because of the ruling dynasty And their attachment to Persian As their court And their literary language of choice But you can see again You have this desire for And this attachment to Rokhnabad And how that draws one towards Shiraz. Of course what potentially Salman is saying here is that he is flirting with the idea of a relationship with the court of Shiraz Um, he may even simply be responding to the many allusions in the poetry of his key rival Hafez, in which Hafez plays with the idea and in a way flirts with the court of of, uh, Baghdad saying that Perhaps it's now time that he move on from Shiraz or that he's not um, respected enough in his own city that he might have a better deal in Baghdad He never went to Baghdad, but he talks about it a lot Maybe Salman is kind of reciprocating uh, in this short qaza. The uh, other two uh, quotations are from an, another poet One of these Um, very less well known poets that I've looked at in order to try and gain some insight uh, into uh, what is actually happening between these rival courts you can see this poet is called Atare Shirazi or Ruha Atar, the spirit of Atar in a way, but he wrote um, unlike uh, what Atar uh, the uh, famous Attar focused on which really was more uh, masnavi than anything else although he has important ghazals Ruha Attar was a, a minor court poet but someone who was close enough both to the court in terms of power but also to important um, literary circles that middle quotation just shows the way in which a poet like Attar plays with uh, the relationship between Baghdad and Shiraz Here he talks about the Tigris Having the potential to Flow through Shiraz rather than Baghdad If you were to to weep That's a rather romantic image The third line The third um, extract Is also from uh, Ruha Attar But here What he's doing Is comparing And he does this in more than one poem Is is, uh, comparing Salman With Hafez Or Hafez with Salman And he says in uh, this poem elsewhere, where this uh, quotation comes from, that he was asked in Shiraz, by people of his circle, which was the greater poet. Was it Hafez or was it Salman? And given that Atar, this Atar, is a poet from Shiraz, is being asked by a group of people in Shiraz, who are very close to the court of Shiraz which is meant to be a sworn enemy in many ways of the court of Baghdad and Salman is the most important court poet in Baghdad he gives this very balanced, very diplomatic, very respectful uh, in relation to Salman a very respectful um, uh, assessment of the uh, comparative and the really equal station of these poets It's fascinating because of the context within which Attar says these things But it also challenges then The way in which we Looking back to the 14th century And to this particular context of Shiraz And how it related to other cities at the time It challenges the way in which we Must go back and read Hafez again Because if people at the time are able to say this Then we need to, I believe uh, strip away some of that, um, uh, uh, that uh, kind of habit that has developed over a very long period of time since the end of the 15th century of seeing Shiraz, uh, Hafez and Hafez's place within Shiraz as something that is completely separate from other poets at the time This is not how they worked They worked in an environment in which they were competing but also as Atar shows you here In which they were responding Sometimes quite respectfully To one another And not always in a, a kind of Tug of war A poet who I think Was probably much less respectful Than Salman Is the wonderful Kamal Khujandin. If you want to, another kind of good laugh You should read Kamolev Khojandim He's not as rude as Obeyed but He is um, is very interesting in terms of how confident he is in his own brilliance and how he sees himself both in relation to the past and in relation to contemporaries. As I've said, the poets active in Shiraz and in rival cultural hubs across the 14th century, throughout the 14th century and across Iran and Iraq worked within localised yet interconnected networks of composition, performance, reception, and transmission. Poets continually played off one another, all the while treading this fine line between plagiarism, imitation, and mimicry. They strove to not only outdo one another in eloquence, but also to negotiate a foothold for themselves in the tradition by asserting their status as rightful heirs to the poetic past. And this is something that Kamal does repeatedly in relation to Saadi. It was through imitation of both dead and living poets and mastering the canon and its generic conventions that the successful poet made a lasting name for him or herself. In Persian, poetic imitation, which can be formal, lexical, syntactic or semantic or all at the same time, as explored by Lazensky in his work on Safavid poetry, is known by various names, including esteqbal, which means welcoming, tatabo, pursued, eqtefa, following, javabguyi, answering, but also in a sense dialoguing, or naziraguyi, which is composing parallel or companion poems after and in response to an earlier poem. Poetic response which normally involved the adoption of the formal features of the model poem and often featured a direct quotation of a line or a key phrase from it and we've seen many examples of that was not considered plagiarism but rather borrowing. When a poet engages in Estetbol a demand is made that the new poem be read in dialogue with its source. But the towering genius of a canonical poet such as Saadin, could, if not negotiated wisely, stifle the talent of an aspiring one, which meant that imitation could only be embarked upon with a deep knowledge of literary heritage. As Lewis has reminded us, imitation was permissible, even desirable, as long as the responding poet proved a worthy imitator. An imitation, In imitation, intertextual acknowledgment of poetic prowess is coupled with an implicit challenge to the poet whose words are being reworked. The imitator presents him or herself as an equal, equipped with the necessary literary skills not only to imitate, but also to interpret and potentially better the work of his predecessor or contemporary. Such social intercourse assumes that the poet and the consumer belong to a single textual community the practice of responding to predecessors and contemporaries via Javob Gu'i also has a diachronic value in that it has the potential to create a transhistorical chain of intertextual replies. Abundant evidence of the literary and broader cultural superiority of Shiraz is found in the works of poets who did not make their careers in Shiraz, such as, in this case, Kamal of who died around 1400, when Kamal invokes the memory of Saadi, Shiraz's most famous dead poet, his tone is often haughty. In a ghazal written in imitation of one by Saadi, which ends with a half line quoted verbatim from the model poem, Kamal declares his response to, the, to that poem to be no less eloquent than Saadi's original poem. Kamal boasts that if Saadi had been alive in his day, he would have wiped clean his poetry notebook upon hearing Kamal's subtle sayings. Elsewhere, Kamal suggests that his poetic genius is fed by Saadis. He talks about his fragrant plot, his bustan, and of course there's an an allusion to Saadis' monumental poem. Kamal claims that he has mastered Saadis' delicate poetic skill such that no one believes that he is from Khujand originally, which is in Central Asia, and not from Shiraz itself. Kamal is the self-designated Sa'adi of the age, by virtue of his fine poetry and his prose. Kamal quotes directly from Sa'adi and claims that his own verses are so sweet that they will not only attract sugar from Egypt, but also Sa'adi himself from Shiraz, as though he would come out of the grave in order to pay homage to Kamal. The Tabriz-based poet says that because of him, Khujand, which was previously considered inferior to Shiraz, has now gained a degree of honor. Kamal's poetry also bears the mark of interaction with that of his most famous and most celebrated Shirazi contemporary, Hafez. In one ghazal. Kamal reassures his Tabrizi audience So What I'm talking about now is this last quotation Which is a response to the line above Which is by Hafez In that Ghazal, Kamal reassures his Tabrizi audience That for their sake He will not express a desire to travel to Shiraz And will not therefore seek the patronage of the Mosacharites it's difficult to know the exact extent to which Hafez's poetry had spread during his lifetime, but it is reasonable to assume that it was not only known to the Jalairids, but also performed at the courtly wine and poetry parties staged in both Baghdad and Tabriz. Hafez's bazars would have spread to these Persian-speaking courts along the same routes taken by itinerant Sufis, pilgrims, preachers, merchants, musicians and entertainers, and of course poets, who passed through Shiraz, having intersected the elite and non-elite networks in which Hafez's bazaars circulated. Whatever the medium, whether it be war, trade, diplomacy, wandering sages, traveling musicians, itinerant poets, Hafez's poetry exported his fame and that of his patrons far beyond Shiraz. Without him, having to leave the city for any significant amount of time. In 1421, Muhammad Iqbal says that Hafez's poetry, and I think he means during his lifetime, had spread to Turkestan, by which he means uh, the part of Central Asia closest to Afghanistan and modern-day Iran, Hindustan, India, Iraqain, both of the Iraqs, meaning the Iranian plateau essentially, and Uh, Arab Iraq and Azerbaijan As I've already mentioned Hafez's popularity was consolidated in the Timurid period with the compilation voracious copying and wide dissemination of his divan Timurid fascination with Hafez is manifest in uh, the humorous javabs or responses of, uh, to over 20 of Hafez's ghazals and the ghazals of many other 13th and 14th century poets by a poet who's known as Bushaq, Bushaq al-Shirazi or At-Emeh, foods um, but also in uh, the poetry of Jami, the great poet and in, in A traditional way of thinking, the last really truly great classical poet of Persian poetry who died near the end of the 15th century. Jami in his uh, Ghazals uh, quotes uh, repeatedly, or imitates repeatedly Hafez and Saadi in a very deliberate fashion. Jami's poetry was popular across the full span of what people now refer to as the Persianate world, meaning from really Anatolia all the way into Central Asia and the Indian subcontinent by the close of the 15th century. Given his deep intertextual dialogue with Hafez, perhaps Jami should be credited with solidifying Hafez's posthumous popularity. The power of imitation and invocation for the dissemination of a poet's works must not, must not be underestimated. Manuscripts produced in the last few decades of the 14th century and the first few decades of the 15th show that Hafez's ghazals were read side by side with those of his contemporaries. And here you have uh, a list of really the most uh, important poets of Shiraz. Tabriz, Baghdad, and smaller places such as Yazd uh, and Kerman. In a manuscript produced in 1407, Bazals by Halfez are inscribed in the margins, in the margins, with Salman's poetry as a central text. A manuscript from 1421, this most important one, early one, contains 428 Bazals by Halfez. The preface by Golandam As well as Jalal, one of these other poets Who is mentioned here Jalal Adina din Azwadi Yazdin Who made his career again really ultimately in Shiraz Um, As well as Jalal's whole divan And a selection of the short lyric poems of kamal e I've already mentioned uh, the case of boshaq shirazi Who died in the 1420s who was a younger contemporary of Hafez and whose poetry displays interestingly a complete disregard for mystical pretensions and his parodies of more than 20 of Hafez's ghazals and many ghazals by other poets really are very worthwhile for uh, those working on Hafez to study because they, they show which of Hafez's poems really were the most popular at the turn of the Uh, the end of the the 14th, going into the 15th century, in Shiraz. By the close of the 14th century, Shiraz itself had become synonymous in the collective Persian imaginary with fine poetry and innate poetic genius. All the great poets of the immediate post-Mongol period either hailed from the city, spent part or the entirety of their career there, or connected their poetry intertextually with that of preeminent Shirazi poets. In such lyrical encounters within a transregional network of dense intertextual relationships that included poets in Shiraz, Yazd, Kerman, Esfahan, Baghdad and Tabriz, living poets attempted to forge a link with Saadi's canonical lyric legacy and thereby appropriate a portion of Saadi's fame, whilst promoting the idea that they, they and no one else, was the true heir uh, and the true inheritor of his inimitably simple style. Ghazals are texts that travel easily between multiple performance contexts, both within and across sites of production. In the case of poets such as Saadi and Hafez, as I've said, that Ghazals travelled to rival courts dotted across large swathes of the Persianate world. Following the death of Hafez, Shiraz underwent a further transformation into a kind of poetical image for later Persian poets. And this was particularly the case uh, for those poets active in India who considered Shiraz as, quote, and this is Anne-Marie Schimmel, the true home of classical Persian lyrics, the ideal city of the purest literary tradition. As Shimmel has argued, to state that one's heritage was Shirazine was to claim spiritual and linguistic nobility. As Hafez himself seems to have predicted, They will crack sugar, all the parrot, parrots, rather the poets, of India, from this Persian candy that travels to Bengal. Thank you very much. I welcome your questions, and even your comments. Please. Libraries is a little bit of a stretch of the imagination, I think. I mean, there were, we know that there were very important uh, collections of Quran, copies of the Quran, and of certain uh, religious texts in Shiraz of the time. Um, uh, in the uh, what is now called Masjid Atiq, the, the most, you know, the oldest or thought to be the oldest mosque in Shiraz that is still standing. But also um, in the collection uh, around the shrine of Shah Cheragh, the most important Shi shrine that is in the centre of Shiraz. So we know that in the um, well, in the 13th century, but in relation to this period, in the earlier part of the 14th century, a lot of money was put by the local rulers, in particular the mother of. Um, Shah Sheikh Abu into producing very fine copies of the Quran. So they had a kind of more public, I guess, uh, presence, although you couldn't really still call it public. In terms of poetry, I mean the, these uh, poems of this type, um in Ghazal form, you know, they're they're very short poems. Um, and they're very easy, really, and especially at that time. Uh, given that people were, the people who were um, performing them were professional performers, professional musicians or singers, um, they're very easy to memorize. So you don't at least initially necessarily need them to be written down or copied in, in large numbers for them to be disseminated. That's of course important when things do start to become collected into singular uh, collected volumes, divan, of uh, of an individual poet. But as I mentioned, some of those manuscripts and there are many others from uh, one or two which are actually from the lifetime of Hafez himself as well. They are very often um, in the form and in the original form of a kind of majmu'eh. So, they might have a full divan of a particular poet in the same manuscript as then a selection of 50, 60, 70 poems by another poet and then a handful by someone else, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, But quite often they are originally created in that way. And if you have a Majmu'e like that, you have a library. But of course it is a contemporary library. It's your you know, it's the best sellers of that that particular period. Yeah. Please. I was wondering the so, source of the last um, article, you should remark her about the poetry from she wants to make It's uh from a ghazal by hafez one of his famous ghazals And you know, the the a lot is written about Hafez and about that poem as well. Um, And a lot of people disagree what the actual uh, historical context of it is. But it seems to allude to him having been invited, uh, perhaps in a rather formal way, to one of the local courts of of India, of Bengal. Um, What I think is is more interesting about it is, and you find this quite often in, in, in a good number of Hafez's poems, That he um, has a sense that his poetry is spreading quite far and wide Or at least it has the ability to do that You know, that kind of line that I ended with is perhaps Within Hafez's lifetime is something that is aspirational But very quickly after his death And perhaps before he had died You know, it became a reality there is a, um, if you read Persian, there is a, a very interesting uh, article by Shafi'i Khat Kani about how a, a single poem might be transmitted. And he has a theory on how quickly a ghazal from somewhere like Shiraz could end up in Tabriz or Baghdad or even as far as India, Central Asia. And that even to those. What, what must have seemed uh, quite remote places in relation to Shiraz. I think Shafiq Adkani thinks that uh, an individual poem could travel there within a month, within a couple of months. I mean, it, we're not talking about years necessarily for poems to spread that far at that time. Please. What
1: do you think about, uh, I mean, for mm-hmm. it was a little is a
0: contemporary of Sa'adi. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, at that time, but uh, he was very mm, renowned by Hafez because the book of Hash mm-hmm. Behesh, that's one of the books uh, Hafez had written mm-hmm. always with his hand at the time that he was <coughs> and then uh, he is referring to Tuti, mm-hmm. Shekar Shikanshavan having Tuti on a hand. Tuti <coughs> was the Abbreviation name for Amir Khosrow, the ADAPI. Mm-hmm. So he was really interested by uh, Hafez. Mm-hmm. So I think when you are going to tell all of them, must talk also
0: about mm-hmm. that. Because yeah, these are the people who are active at the time of Hafez. Yeah, but which is not Amir Khosrow, he's been dead for a century. Because
1: he was a, a bit far, he was in mm-hmm. India.
0: I mean, he's also dead. <laughs> Yes, Sadi was, was Well, Sadi never dies But Amir Khosrow is definitely dead At this point Yes, I'm joking I'm, I'm, en- I'm kind of English as well as Persian I'm joking Yes, it's true I mean, you see the problem And the beauty of Persian poetry Medieval or pre-modern Persian poetry Is that unlike Let's just say English Medieval English there are hundreds of important poets, right? And the way in which the tradition worked, up until, you know, really the beginning of the 20th century, and in some cases long into the 20th century, is that a great poet draws from, you know, all of these great figures that come before him, or her. And someone like Hafez, you know, and to their credit, some Iranian scholars now in Persian are writing in this way, you know, it, it's very difficult to argue for originality in Hafez. Once you start to look very closely at where not just, you know, imagery and metaphor and but, but quite concrete things, like whole phrases, if not half lines. You know, the way in which he uses rhyme, the way in which he uses meter, the way in which he uses the radif in Persian, the repeated word or phrase at the end. Very little of it is original in any way that we would understand it. And that's not to say that, not to uh, diminish his uh, achievement, but rather to help us understand that a poet who almost dies in 1400 (coughs) when he picks up his pen, or rather you know, composes poetry without writing, which is probably what he was doing, he is referencing people all the way back to Rudaki and behind Rudaki, right? It is that kind of tradition. And it's very difficult, I think, for us to understand that relationship. Amir Hosser, yes, is important. I mean, the, there is a very interesting example um, where uh, Jahan Malek Khartun who is a poet I've worked on a lot is the only female poet that I've mentioned here um, a direct contemporary of Hafez someone who you can see from her poetry was responding to or being responded to by Hafez they seem definitely to have been in dialogue whether or not they knew each other personally but they certainly dialogue in their, in their written work um, Jahan Malek Khatun has a in praise of Shah Shoja that, that uses almost a full qazal by Amir Khosrow in the poem without saying this has anything to do with Amir Khosrow so I mean that is a very deliberate behaviour by a poet, I think much more deliberate than what you can find in Hafez, it's a little bit more subtle but that's a very deliberate uh, borrowing from Amir Khosrow in order to praise a contemporary patron.
1: He has borrowed also the first line and the first in the in the first in the beginning of the Hafez The one he says, "Elah ya ya hasab, el kaksan That ya Exactly in our proposal. In, in, I mean, really
0: sure, cool. but I mean it's a, it's a far older Arabic poem. So, yeah, I know, no, but most of them
1: they are
0: used.
1: Sure. But it comes after.
0: No? Yes. Yes, I guess so, yep. <laughs> Sorry, gentleman there, and then so, so the so one behind you. In terms of she was specifically. Um, you mentioned Assam was about hundred years before. Yes.
1: So where would you say was the origin of
0: poetry? the hmm. How
1: did that
0: fit? Why does it become you know the the thing that is
1: what did it
0: start with about how did it look like Um I guess the the thing that is easier to answer is why you could have someone like Saadi in Shiraz in the thirteenth century? And you know, the, f- the fact is that, I mean, there's been a lot of um, historians now who do a lot of kind of um, revision of the way in which the Mongol period, not only the Mongol period, but the Mongol invasion is talked about. And it's important to remember that there was a lot of destruction with the coming of the Mongols. But in quite a few places, and one of them is Shiraz, there was very little destruction. Because the city negotiated Because the city learned And was, you know, capable of um, Not getting along with But, you know, not putting up enough of a fight That meant that they would be destroyed And so Shiraz in the middle of the 13th century Which is really the most important period for Sa'edin and for the formation of Sa'edin Is... One of those few places that has a long history That has not been particularly attacked by the Mongols And the Mongols allow the uh, Salghurid dynasty of Shiraz To continue to effectively rule Fars right? There's a long line of... And they, they call themselves king They call themselves king of Iran at some point um, they are the ones that repeatedly use this idea of Molke Soleiman, you know, the, the dominion or the realm of Solomon. They have a very elevated view of themselves, but they're allowed to cultivate that and continue that even though we have the coming of the Mongols and then you know the, the Ilhanid period, the period of Mongol rule in Iran. So that is why you can have someone like Saadi in the thirteenth century. You know, the origin of um, New Persian poetry, as we call it uh, The poetry That emerges um, And the literary Form that emerges After the coming of Islam To the Iranian world The origin of that primarily Is uh, Eastern Iranian You know, it is the the Broader region of Khurasan So modern day eastern Iran Afghanistan, Turkmenistan going into what is Tajikistan Uzbekistan, that whole area that is where new Persian poetry comes from it doesn't come from Shiraz you know, th- something that's very interesting about this and why I kind of ended in talking about Indian poets that are later than this rather than Amir Khosrow people who are you know, very much are Indian rather than anything else, is that it. Even though new Persian poetry doesn't originate from Shiraz They do such a good job in the 13th and 14th century You would think it did Just like the language itself You know, the uh, new Persian emerges in Khurasan originally It doesn't emerge in Farce, but we call it Farsi. But it doesn't emerge in Farce, really Yeah? That that is still the word used in Afghanistan is the word that is primarily used in Khorasan in the, you know, we're talking about the the eighth, the ninth, going into the tenth century. That is where the all of that literary work is happening. That's why you have Rudaki from Samarkand. That's why you have um, uh, his contemporary Shahid Khim. If you look at all of the important poets of the the late ninth and the tenth century, they are all Samar Gandhi, Marvi, Balchi, Termezi, uh, Bukharai, or Bukhari. Yeah, they're not from anywhere else. Even with the Ghaznavids, they are you know, Farochi is from Sistan originally, right? Eastern Iran. Manu Chahri is from Damgan, but it's still not it's not Fars It's not Esfahan, it's not yeah. There is later a shift. But it's not where it originates from. So the fact that everyone still goes on and on and on about how Shiraz is really, you know, the home of poetry, of lyric poetry, is a testament to what Saadi did and then the kind of canonization of Saadi through imitation that you find in Hafez, but also all of these other poets of the time. Sorry. No, sorry, it's the... Yes, with the glasses and then it's you. Yes.
1: Poetry. But then there is mm-hmm. a lot of reference to wine and drunkenness, and, uh, mm-hmm. which refers to the spirituality and going beyond uh, the religious aspect of it. Can mm-hmm. you
0: talk to that? Um, in, in, in regards to what?
1: Is there a reading of uh, what's the reference to wine, or what's the reference sure. to the drunkenness, and is that uh, the Aspect of religion or is
0: it Yeah, I mean the you know the the point really of um, the Ghazal form, especially in Persian, as it develops, is uh, and and the height of this aspect that I'm going to talk about is the poetry of Hafez himself, is an ambiguity between whether something is meant to be primarily mystical or not, right? That's the whole point of that's the crux of what he does With the Gaza And so even when we ask the question Is it more this or is it more that I mean we miss the point of what he's doing Because he does it in a way that Allows for a multiplicity of uh, Ways of understanding Ways of using a poem yeah? These poems didn't have a singular Or, or a, uh, just a one time performance Or recitation they had many, and they had many immediately, in different contexts, for different purposes. Um, so with a poet like Hafez, I think it's futile most of the time to try and pull one apart from another. So yeah, I would say when he talks about drunkenness, he means both. But both are not uh, necessarily to be thought of as two poles, but rather something that works together. And we like to see things in, uh, as a dichotomy. You know, we like to see things in black and white But actually, you know The relationship in Hafez is, is far more complicated um, I can't remember whether it's So uh, Or Ma'ayad uh, They both talk about this in a slightly different way But they, when trying to Explain the relationship between What you can call profane or earthly And non-mystical and mystical In the Ghazal I think one of them says that it's as though the Persian Ghazal has a kind of a backbone or a column to it which is um, non-mystical and that mystical elements kind of attach to that as you go up the poem or down the poem. That these things are fused together but in a way that is often in hafiz impossible to, to um, think about how to separate. But the question really goes back to what is happening in the the 9th century and the 10th century and the 11th century. And in those centuries, in lyric poetry, so in poetry that is meant to be talking or presents itself as though talking about personal experience and about love normally and uh, loss in love and things like that, that is very often also the poetry that can be sung and performed uh, uh, and accompanied with music. In Persian, in those periods, it has almost zero uh, mystical content. But it has huge amount to say about wine. right? Wine was obviously very important, as it had been, but very important to those early uh, Muslim courts in the Iranian context. And so when you get the development of mystical lyric poetry, which becomes very important by the middle or Latter part of the eleventh century, going onwards, um, and of course is very well established by the time you have Saadi and Hafiz. You are looking at something that, um, even with uh, uh, Rumi, you know, who is a, uh, undoubtedly a mystical poet, a Sufi, an important Sufi, he is writing ghazal, which is very often appears to be about the human erotic experience or about drunkenness in a very kind of, you know, uh, worldly fashion. But he he means to use those things for a mystical uh, effect. But if you don't, if you, either as the poet or the audience or now us later as readers, if we don't have an appreciation for the origin and the kind of groundwork that is the basis for the mystical use of those metaphors, the metaphor in this mystical sense Kind of collapses If you don't have an appreciation for drunkenness Or the erotic On a human level Then using it in a, in a, as a mystical Metaphor doesn't mean anything right? It can mean something I guess if you, if you repeatedly Think about and study The idea of uh, a, a mystical Experience that is akin to A strong emotion But pretty difficult to to grasp that without having an appreciation for the other thing I think it's the same when you look at this poetry if you don't know where it comes from and what it is reworking or building upon then you remain immediately you know kind of confounded by the fact that there's so much wine imagery um, but actually it's not really the case You wanted to inject something? Yes. Uh, You have to speak uh, loudly, I think.
1: Thank you. Please. Thank you for your talk. Uh, Just out of curiosity, back at that time, how was these poems used in the society? Was it used for education, life coach, entertainment?
0: Uh, All, I would think. It depends on you know. As I tried to explain, I think the. uh, and it's a difficult thing for us to do, but the, each one of these Ghazals may have had an original purpose, you know, been composed for an original purpose, but very quickly could f- be used for a whole number of things. So, entertainment of various types, yes, as a kind of song, but also, you know, they, not all of them, but many of them have a, a kind of deeper weight to them. So, it can be used for different kinds of contemplation. So, yeah. I mean, they, they don't have a, any one particular use. Yeah. So,
1: uh, yeah, as everybody knows, Hafez and his poems have, have a very special uh, place in the Iranian literature and mm-hmm. uh, for people, as our Hafez and lots of traditions. Sure. How come Hafez historically to this position?
0: Uh, again, I think I explained that that phenomenon is really a creation, most likely of the Timurid period, of the 15th century whether or not, I mean there was definitely um, not definitely, there was possibly a sense that there was something a little bit more special about Hafez, right? Right? During his lifetime, around the time he died But this idea that The divan can be used in that way Given that the divan As far as anyone knows Was not compiled during His lifetime Then obviously has no relationship to him The use of the divan cannot have A relationship to Hafez personally Because it did not exist when he was alive As far as anyone knows Um, But you know The The uh, The 15th century is a long time ago As the gentleman was saying People, you know, have for hundreds of years Have been having the debate about the real wine And not the real wine, and the mystical wine But they've been having the debate about, you know Is as more important than all of his friends and enemies For as long, yeah? For 500 years It's a long time, 600 years It's a very long time So it's almost impossible For people who study Persian literature and for you know, people who interact with these things on a maybe slightly less academic or, or um, not necessarily less informed but less academic way it's impossible really to leave that to one side and to then try and look at Hafez in a way that doesn't uh, involve all of these preconceived notions of his position. But that requires reading, you know, 20 or 30 other poets that are writing at the same time and trying to think about how they interact with one another. Please. I was wondering,
1: I, I noticed some references to boys and was, was the love of boys like in ancient Greece? Or, I mean, was a lot of the love po- poetry uh, directed it? At- mm-hmm. Males.
0: Most likely. More, yeah. more, more
1: than females,
0: should you say? This kind of poetry, yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But um, Persian uh, poetry has many important forms, and the, the form, the maslavi form, which is used for storytelling, is generally the form that is used for telling uh, romances. And in romance in Persian poetry... 95% of the time, it's uh, male female. It's heteroerotic. But lyric poetry is generally homoerotic. It's true. But it's in part because it, you know, that, or rather that is exacerbated by the fact that a lot of it is panegyric. And n- almost without exception, the rulers were male. Sometimes they are female, and then there has to be a renegotiation in the lyric poetry to accommodate that. So it makes sense if, to praise a male because you, uh, I mean to eroticize a male because you're praising a male patron um, and then when it's, when it's used for mystical purposes God is generally conceived of as being male as well and of course the prophet is also male so these things work quite well together uh, in that way. Um, one two I think we have four more questions and then.
1: Please Can you talk about Farsi? Just a... و okay Yes Because I سوالی از Shirazi شما ندارم. از a دوری با I گرفتاریا اومدم با این برنامه شما have a تنها سوالی نیست I don't have a شما باشم با این برنامه بسیار قشنگی که توضیح دادین در مورد شهر من هرچند که شهر همه من هم ما ایرانی هم و خواستم واقعا این اولین و بهترین اطراعات بود که در طول هفته و سه سال عمرو من که پنجه سالشم معلم بودم لشد رو خواستم بگم سپاسگزارم خدا رو این برنامه خوب شما دید. واقعا من
0: Oh, sorry. The lady was saying that um, <coughs> she herself is from Shiraz and um, I won't translate it in the way that she said it, but she was very, um, very grateful for. Uh, the way in which I presented the poetry, but also the history of her hometown.
1: I've translated. She said, uh, "She is from Shiraz. This is the best description of her city she has ever heard in 73 years. She was a, a teacher and taught history, and she is extremely grateful that she has been revived by this remarkable presentation." <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm very, very unknowledgeable
1: about Indian history,
0: but how did this get through the Islamic culture? Well, I think the problem is that So, I have two answers. One is, and again, many people in this room will know better than me, but um, Hafez talks quite often in his poems about the the figure of the Muhtaseb now, the muhtasib is really a, you know, an administrative position. It is someone who, originally at least, went into the marketplace to make sure that people weren't cheating and that their weights and measures were correct, right? But it, that position develops, and certainly develops in the poetry of Hafez, into a very kind of vilified figure that polices um, the morality of the urban space. Yeah? He is an enemy, uh, Hafez is an enemy of this, this figure But the Muhtaseb, very often in his poetry is a way for Hafez to talk about uh, the first Mozaffarid king who ruled Shiraz who um, is generally thought of as someone who was not interested in poetry I mean, we have quite a lot of poetry written for him, so that's not necessarily true but he's very famous for apparently being very, very pious and as Hafez tells us, and other poets do, of closing down the wine taverns and controlling public space in relation to what he saw as immoral behaviour. So one way of answering your question is to say, in the period of someone like Mubarezuddin, who is the muhtasib, it didn't do very well this kind of poetry. But he was an exception for the period we're talking about. I think our our um, way of thinking about um, n- not necessarily the religion but the kind of Islamic culture as if there is such a thing is today very um, narrow and that, and it's understandable why it's so narrow but it, it's extremely narrow and doesn't help when we try and think about this medieval context just as you know if someone on, on the kind of flip side if someone says that you know you, you can't call Hafiz a mystic because he is a you know he's a really a secular poet he stands outside of religion he's he's not part of religion and, i mean the, these ways of talking about a medieval context are, are essentially nonsense yeah. but but the, they're nonsense because it, it, nobody stood outside of religion in that sense right because that was the fundament of culture but but re, well no but religion was a a far broader thing than we think of it today you yeah? there were many ways of being you know I don't think any of these individuals saw themselves as not being Muslim Just but they had a different way of interacting with certain things than you oh, maybe maybe
1: too, when you think about Christianity
0: or- sure but we've we've learned or we've been taught to have a slightly broader view of Uh, Medieval European context. We need to, you know, especially us who have an Iranian background, we need to think a little bit broader about uh, medieval and pre modern. Uh, You know, this is pre Safavid, and there is a difference. You know, certain things, the place of religion and what uh, religion means in an Iranian context changes with the Safavids. This is pre Safavid, it's quite different, and we are still suffering the. In we are still suffering the consequences of the Safavid period. Sorry,
1: you gentlemen at the
0: right. If uh-huh. the
1: Aspect of the voice of poetry are not, at least, they do not seem to be followed by others. Let me focus on one the conspicuous insisting on a using Persian
0: language. We uh-huh. do not really see that. In the you mean linguistically? Linguistically. Uh-huh. Yeah. And let's
1: focus
0: on that. Sure. Another but you. D- is
1: Right. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't know I mean it's a you know you're talking about someone who completes the Shahnama in 1010 Hafez dies in 1390 so a lot of things happen between 1010 and 1390 right Nevertheless, I mean you, It's not an impossible question to ask um, I think you can turn it around And say What is there about um, The project of Ferdowsi I mean we, we seem to accept What Ferdowsi does in the Shahnameh As though it were Commonplace In his context Or as though he is representative of what is happening in New Persian poetry at the beginning of the 11th century, and he is not. Sure, but it's an important point that I'm making, which is Ferdowsi is really the exception in many ways, not completely, but in many ways. Hafez is very much, you know, at the centre of this big circle that I'm talking about, right? The other really important thing is that you're comparing one form with another form. Or you're comparing epic and romance poetry in masnavi form with something that is ghazal and ghassidat. They really have very little to do with one another in terms of how they, how poets use language within those forms to express ideas. And one is narrative and one is not. One tells stories and in ghazal, because these are very short, they point to stories. They remind you of things. They allude to things. They don't tell you stories normally. <laughs> but sorry, let me let me talk about linguistically. What Ferdowsi did in the Shahnameh, which is, which is why he really is an exception in many ways, and isn't a very important exception. But what he did in the Shahnameh, in terms of how he used New Persian, was not in keeping. With the new Persian of the courts by and large And certainly not in keeping with the new Persian as used by lyric poets Who very freely used Arabic vocabulary Ferdowsi deliberately and very much artificially avoided Arabic Now he did that, I believe, because he was writing I mean it's a, it's a work that ends with the coming of Islam He wants to sound authentic in some obviously slightly manufactured way, but authentic in that everything he's talking about is from the beginning of time, which of course begins in Iran, to the coming of Islam. He doesn't want to use Arabic because he wants to use Persian in order to tell the stories of the Persian people and the Persian kings. But it's a very artificial process. It's not natural. And and how you can see it's not natural is look at the way in which Drudaki, long before Ferdowsi, is using New Persian. It's full of Arabic. And they do not see the New Persian poets of the Samanid period, which is really Ferdowsi's period, the beginning of the Ghazavid, they don't see Arabic as something that is exterior to them as a literary language. Natural in terms of natural in terms of literary language. But
1: it was
0: of yes, but that's also ma'aserat mukham. No, it's complete nonsense. Two two hundred years of silence is. I'm sorry if you've had a talk on this no. before, but it's utter
1: nonsense. But
0: you say that anyway. Yes, that's true. <laughs> we do. It is not possible. It is not possible that it is not possible that Rudaki, who dies in 940 or 941 if you look at the poetry of Rudaki as far as we have it with all the caveats about manuscripts and versions, you know, variants and uh, people fiddling with it and whatever, it is not possible that Rudaki could produce poetry at that level in New Persian if he were and his circle were the innovators of that literary language. It is impossible. There must have been, whether or not we have it in written form or not, and in fragmentary form, there must have been a century at least of new Persian lyric poetry before we have Rudaki. But that was really to
1: make the point, not that there was absolutely
0: nothing whatsoever. <laughs> دو قرن سکوت یعنی هیچ کس نه حرف میزنه نه مینویسه و مهمتر از این نه فکر میکنه فاقد ایرانی در اون دو قرن مذارت میخوام ایرانی در اون دو قرن اصلا فاقد خلاقیت، فاقد هویت ما میتونیم این رو قبول بکنیم؟ well, dog is Well that is the point, unfortunately. Anyway, I mean we can talk about it later. I think we're all out of time. We
1: are out of time. Yes.